I was just thinking earlier uh, how often in these moments of, um, of chaos or of crisis, it seems the whole world is kind of in some kind of carnage at the moment. Um, and we, we look at a moment like COVID-19 and the response can be to batten down the hatches um, and can to be like, um, yes, I'm not, I'm not going to give you a rant on not thinking social distancing is good. I'm not one of those guys. I think great that we're social distanced. Um, but sometimes what we can revert to is how do we preserve the little we have? Um, but there is this interesting thing in the scriptures where often the point of sending comes in the midst of moments like these. Hey. So the disciples are all held up in a room after Jesus is left with the door locked, um, fearing for their lives that they will be associated with this new cult that has sprung up around this man, Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit turns up. Uh, Jesus turns up, says, I'm sending you, and gives them the Holy Spirit to empower them. You know, the church's greatest moment of our crisis was the diaspora, which actually sent the church all throughout the world in order to reach people. And I just wonder if there's a little bit of a word here tonight. Um, I was just praying before the service. So here we are spread out, which is good and is right and is proper. But what about if every space that we have here in the next year was filled with someone else who doesn't know Jesus? or doesn't have a place of faith? You know, what if there is a little bit of a prophetic call to us in this to create a little distance in our cozy relationships in order to create more room for those who don't know the family of God or don't know Jesus? Um, What if a little bit of distance is a good thing? What if this is our diaspora moment um, to actually be sent out and to make room um, for others? So just a a little thought there. Um, I'm going to read to you tonight from Philippians 3, uh, 3 to 14. And uh, if you want to close your eyes or get comfortable or however you want to do that, it goes like this. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless." But whatever were gains to me, I now count, consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Really cool passage, eh? I love it when you can hear Paul really racking up. Or maybe I'm just racking up Paul. I don't know. But um, it begins with this passage. Some of you probably got a little stunned at the beginning when it talked about the mutilators of the flesh. 
and it begins talking about circumcision. We lived in community a few years ago um, with an um, incredible young woman, um, but she was very sincere, like very blueprint. Rose actually said to me earlier this year, she said, blueprint is full of sincere women and depressed men. Um, <laughs> but um, these um, <laughs> shrugs her shoulders. And she... Um, she would pull out the she would pull out the scriptures to read during prayers, and she would open them up. And I swear it was four or five times in a row that she opened them and got a, a verse about circumcision. And you know, when Paul gets on that, he just doesn't quit. Eh? He just comes back to it again and again, and she'd just go reader and reader and reader and reader. Um, and then after a few months, she finally got a different verse. Um, she pulls out the psalm, and <laughs> we're sitting there in prayers, and she goes, "Oh Lord." Why do men hotly pursue me? <laughs> Just like disastrous when it came to the scriptures. This um, this thing of circumcision, like it's really awkward when it comes up in the scriptures. It's it's really really awkward. But there is a reason behind all of it. Um, Genesis 17, you have Abraham, and Abraham is the age of 99, uh, and he has not yet had a kid. Big deal for the people of God, for the Israelites, to not have a child, to not have someone to continue your lineage. So he is heartbroken about this situation. And then in Genesis 17, God comes through, and he makes a covenant or a treaty or a promise uh, to Abraham. And he says, it says this, Abraham fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. So Genesis 17, God comes to this man who is 99, clearly not fertile, 99, not able to have a kid, and says, not only are you going to have one kid, but you will be the father of a whole nation. I am going to take your family. Your family is going to become a tribe. Your tribe is going to become a nation. And in the end, of course, with the diaspora, which I talked about before, the movement of God through the world encompassed all of us. And this is what he promises to Abraham. And arguably, if you want to understand the Old Testament and you want to understand the scriptures, this is one of the most important scriptures to get your head around. Because this is really what the rest of the Old Testament is about. When the Jews are in slavery in Egypt, they are asking, will God be faithful to this Genesis 17 promise? When they are in exile in Babylon, they're wondering, will God be faithful to the promise he made to Abraham? Will we be a great nation? Will the God who has come to us be a God who comes to all people? Will the whole world be blessed through us? They're asking this question again and again, and that's where the desire for Messiah comes from is one who will finally break the yoke of oppression and will make this so, will make this true. So the children of Abraham are asking, will God keep his promise to prosper us and to multiply us? And so then we come to verse 11 of Genesis 17 after this covenant, this treaty, this promise. He says, you are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So the sign of the covenant, the sign of the promise, the sign of this treaty was the marking of the flesh through circumcision. So the way that a covenant would happen back in the day was that they would divide a cow down the middle and they would walk through the trail of blood. And so in the same way, this is a bit grisly, sorry um, Shine TV, but um, <laughs> there is, um, they would walk through this corridor of blood And in the same way as the flesh would be torn of the cow, every male's flesh would be torn to mark that they were this covenant, this promise people. 
And so this really became the big dividing line between the people who had become part of this cult who followed this man named Jesus and the old covenant people is whether the symbol was still required because the old people were saying, we are still awaiting the promise that was to come from Genesis 17. And Paul and the likes were saying, no, 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 there is a whole new covenant, a whole new treaty. And in this case, the flesh that was torn was not the flesh of an animal. It's not the flesh of any of us, but it was the flesh of Christ. And through that, he brought us freedom. And he opened this new way of God to the entire world. And so there's this big, you see these big arguments, these big bust-ups in the New Testament over this thing of circumcision, which seems odd, right? But when you understand that that was the symbol of God's faithfulness, really the question of circumcision is, are we an old covenant or are we a new covenant people? Are we leaning on the old covenant of the flesh, the torn flesh, or are we leaning on the new covenant of Christ? These two different things all symboled in this, symbolized in this thing of circumcision. So next time you are in a prayer meeting and someone reads out a scripture about circumcision and feels awkward, you're going to go, oh, that's so beautiful. And they're going to think you're really weird for it. So circumcision was the mark of the old covenant and the question, does God keep his covenant promises? And Paul begins saying in Philippians 3, circumcision isn't needed anymore because we have a new covenant promise sealed through Christ's death on the cross. Through his death on the cross, the promise has been fulfilled. He says this in verse 3. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve by God's Spirit. So the symbol of God's faithfulness is the Holy Spirit within the people of Christ instead of the marking of the flesh. And so whenever you read in the New Testament this dichotomy of the flesh and the Spirit, you can think, what kind of covenant are we living under? Are we living under one where we must flog our own flesh to be right by God, or are we living under one where God's spirit and Christ's sacrifice makes us whole? And so indeed, this may seem to some of us to be a little bit irrelevant um, to the age that we live in. We're not cutting bulls. Um, We don't really make um, sacrifices. Circumcision, I hear, is on the, the decline. But yet we do engage in works of the flesh to feel worthy. And we do engage in works of the flesh to feel okay about ourselves. And so a similar question I want to ask today is, which kind of covenant person are you? Like, are you leaning on a covenant that is through the work of our own bodies and the marking of our own bodies, the marking of our own flesh, our own effort? Or are you leaning on one that was about the marking of Christ's flesh and his effort and what he has done for you? Do you find worthiness in the works of your flesh or do you find worthiness in the works of Christ? What are you doing in the physical to make yourself feel worthy in the spiritual? What sacrifices are you still offering? What old covenants are you still trying to honor? In short, what is it that's making you feel worthy? Where is it that you crucify yourself because you do not receive the crucifixion that Christ received for us? Where do you flog yourself again and again, because circumcision is not a ritual required of us today in our culture, but there are other rituals we adopt to give us the same sense of worthiness. And Paul calls that putting confidence in the flesh. And so this, 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 this evening, I went to say this morning, um, this evening, I want to ask you, what are you holding on to to deliver hope and a promise that only Christ can do? Is it the work of the flesh that is your capability? Is it the work of your flesh that is your reputation? Is it the work of your flesh that is the stuff you can buy? Is it the work of the flesh that is how good you look when you go out in the morning? What makes you worthy? 
Are you living in the new covenant promise? Are you? And so the first question I want to ask you today, what thing of the flesh are you holding on to? Now, in the second part of this uh, scripture, Paul has a problem. He says that he's left behind the old fleshy garbage stuff, believing a new life in Christ is coming, but he's pretty clear that the fullness of that life has not yet arrived for him. Uh, Verse 8, that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, that I may be found in him. Verse 11, I haven't attained all this. Verse 12, I have not yet taken hold of it. So Paul has left behind the old life of the flesh, but he hasn't yet seen the fullness of life in Christ. That's quite full on. Paul left so much for the life in Christ. He left his job. He left his status as this grand Pharisee. He left. He became a, a total cultural outcast to the people who had raised him. He says, I left all that behind, and now the new thing hasn't even arrived. That's full on, eh? You know, it's interesting. I remember a while ago reading about the band U2, and they brought out in the 1980s this song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Does anyone know that song? And they got absolutely monstered by the Christian media over this because they said, well, if you've really found Christ, no, you have found what you're looking for. I don't think that's what they were saying. I think what they were saying is, like Paul, I've left behind some stuff, but there is still a deep longing within me that I've not yet taken hold of all I know that Christ has for me. And that's hard. Effectively, Paul sold up everything he had to go somewhere he hadn't seen yet. And, and I reckon that's a pretty good working definition of faith, eh? Selling up everything you have to go somewhere you've never seen. Like, it's interesting for some of us, you know, until recently with, um, with lockdown and with restrictions around the world, many of us would put five, six, seven grand in a travel agent to go somewhere we've never seen. And the faith that when we arrive there, it will be as good as we think it is. When was the last time we put five, six, seven grand on the line for Jesus? hoping that the home we find in him might be as good as Turkey or Fiji or wherever it is you were going. So definition of faith, selling up everything you have to go somewhere you have never seen. can remember a few years ago finishing up working for a youth centre and feeling the call to lead this church, um, which I don't anymore. Rose is killing it. Um, and... Um, I can remember thinking, man, there's so many great things I could do. I've been in youth work for like nine or ten years, was so excited for the change. Um, and, uh, and I was quite dark on church at the time. Just thought, you know, it's like never lives up to its highest ideals. It tries to be this thing that it never just sort of, it never really achieves it. Um, it doesn't know its neighbours. I was quite dark. And, uh, and I, was, I was walking around one morning and my friend calls me um, from Auckland Um, And because this is going to be broadcast um, nationwide, his name is Brooke Turner. Um, And and he he called me up and he said, I was in the shower this morning and I thought of you. (laughs) Brooke Turner. Um, And and I said, Brooke, what what were you thinking? He said, well, I was was thinking, I think think you're meant to lead this church. I think you're meant to lead Blueprint, Stephen, and lead that. And I said, all right, Brooke, sure, whatever. I went and um, sat down uh, at a cafe a little while later, opened a devotional guide I was doing for the day. The first thing on the page said, where the church is, there is God. I was like, And then came word after word after word after word um, to come and and lead 
this church. And it was a really hard battle to lead this place and, and, and to, to, um, to go on the journey we went with this place. During, during the, that time, um, some of our best people went out and planted Lyle Bay, Lauren and, and the crew, which was awesome. Um, and then at the end of that time, um, we've gone off to Brooklyn. The other week I was talking to Rose, I'm like, man, how good would this church be if we just stopped planting other churches? <laughs> like we could, you know, we could just have like eight weeks of great worship leaders. It would be great every single week. But, um, but there has been this continue, and it is, it's so good every week. <laughs> Leave you to wonder, yeah. Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, it was hard graft, but it was a case of, man, there were better jobs to go to. There was better money to be made. When you've been in the community sector for 10 years, you can go contract to government, make heaps of money talking about what you used to do for passion. Um, and um, <laughs> ooh. You can, Yeah, you can make a heap of money. And then instead came into this place, which could pay Anna and I, I think, a day a week each. We were going to have to go and find other work. We weren't living wage then either. Um, we were like minimum wage. And we just had to step in and we had to go somewhere we'd never seen, believing that that's where God was calling. You know, the beautiful thing about that, so a couple of years ago, we started feeling the sense to go and plant in Brooklyn. There was absolutely no picture of what that would look like. And yet there was this constant unctioning of the Holy Spirit. Go, plant, go there and little breadcrumbs to follow. And the great thing is when you've followed God on one of those journeys of going somewhere, of selling everything you have to go somewhere you've never seen, then you can trust that the next one might be okay too. That's what faith is, eh? It's that you get a sense, God, you were faithful to me the last time I thought it was a total mess. You were faithful the last time I thought you'd never come through. And you did. So here I am at the start of Brooklyn, you know, and I always, I often go around and um, do workshops in different places around community. And the thing I always say to people is the first year of missional community is really hard. And then I've spent all of this year going, why is this so hard? <laughs> but it's so hard. But there is something in me from having sold everything before to go somewhere I've never seen that knows that when we do that, God goes ahead of us and God will be faithful. I want to ask you today, when was the last time you cleared your bank account for Jesus? When was the last time you cleared your schedule for Jesus? When was the last time that you made a risky, audacious, faithful step, selling everything you had to go somewhere, somewhere you'd never seen for Jesus? You know, there's this interesting thing. We talk about wisdom sometimes in the church. We've got to be wise. But unfortunately, we've conflated wisdom and caution, and they're not the same thing, folks, because sometimes the wisdom of God is risky. Sometimes the wisdom of God looks like foolishness to everyone else around you. Oh, I think that's in the Scriptures too, isn't it? Sometimes the wisdom of God is risky and uncautious and irresponsible and reckless. Wisdom is not caution, folks. When was the last time you sold everything you had to go somewhere you'd never seen because Jesus said, go, go? I want to ask you that today. Coming back to that first question, what is the thing of the flesh you're holding on to? The call of followers of Christ is that we give up that which is keeping us afloat in the world and we step out into the unknown depths, knowing we don't have everything we need. We'll still feel some degree of lostness and we haven't yet attained the peace we need to move forward. 
Some of us think that when we come to follow Jesus, it's like we sell an old house and he gives us a better one. No, it's like we sell our own house, our old house, and then we walk the streets. <laughs> Instead of Jesus, foxes and hens have places to rest their head, but the Son of Man has nowhere. That's the man we follow. It's not an upgrade. <laughs> it's a step out into the wild yonder with Jesus. The junior of the follower of Christ is towards faith, and faith is selling up everything to go somewhere you've never seen. So number one, what is the thing of the flesh you're holding on to you need to let go of? Number two, faith is selling up everything you have to go somewhere you've never seen. And so then this brings us to the final part of what Paul talks about. Paul sort of says, then what? So I got rid of the old flesh thing. That's how I knew who I was. That was where my reputation lived. That was where my security lived. That was where my wisdom lived. That was where my um, sense of identity lived. And I stepped out into this new space And stepping out there, I found that I still hadn't fully taken hold of it. And now I find myself in this no man's land of I said yes to Jesus, but it's kind of like like you've stepped out, but you can't yet feel the concrete under your foot for the next step. Who resonates with this when you follow Jesus? That you step out and you thought, God, I thought you were going to be here this next step. And God's saying, no, I'm with you, just not showing it to you yet. And so Paul, Paul says, then what? I've sold up the old home. I'm walking the streets. Where do I go while I wait in the space of faith? And Paul says this in verse 12 to 14. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I am homeless and I am desperate to make my new home with Jesus so I do everything I can to take a hold of that new home. Do everything I can. Something I've thought on a lot recently is the number of people to whom Jesus says, you have great faith and what often precedes that. In Matthew 9, we have the story of a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She's unclean in the eyes of society. She's ostracized from her community. And through this crowd, she crawls through the dust on her hands and her knees, just believing that if she can grab a hold of the hem of his garment, then she will be healed. She grabs it, power goes out from Jesus, and she is healed, and he turns to her and says, you of great faith. Another story, Luke 5, we hear of these four men who have a friend who's paralyzed. And they can't get through the crowd, a crowd again. And so what do they do? Well, they do an act of civil disobedience. They climb up on the roof of some poor guy's house and they start ripping off the tiles and they lower down the stretcher in front of Jesus. And Jesus offers him salvation and offers him healing. And he says, you of great faith. See, there's nothing passive in these people about their pursuit of Jesus, eh? completely the opposite, very unwise. They crawl along the ground. They break open roofs. I'm sure there was an awkward conversation at some point where someone was like, who's going to pay for my roof? (laughs) Sure that happened at some stage. See, we are called to take hold, to press on, to strain towards what is ahead, even while we can't yet see it. In Luke 11, Jesus gives an example of the life of faith by talking about the most annoying neighbor you've ever heard of. It goes like this, it says, Then he said, imagine what would happen if you went to a friend in the middle of the night and said, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. 
An old friend traveling through town just showed up and I don't have a thing on hand. The friend answers from his bed, don't bother me. The door's locked. My children are all down for the night. I can't get up to give you anything. But let me tell you, even if he won't get up because he's a friend, if you stand your ground knocking and waking all the neighbors, he'll finally get up and get you whatever you need. (laughs) Here's what I'm saying. Ask and you'll get, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will open. Can we just go through, like just briefly, like what a just terrible neighbor this this guy is. Just a terrible, terrible neighbor. 1am, he turns up on someone's doorstep. That's enough for me to say, you get out. He turns up and he says, a friend turned up and sorry, I forgot to do the shopping this week. So I'm putting that on you to get me some bread, even though I wasn't responsible. Like, my gosh. And the friend says, shh, I finally got my kids down. It has taken me hours. They are finally sleeping. And so he shuts the door And the friend who understands that he just got his kids down, that he's woken his friend at one in the morning, starts yelling so that the whole neighborhood wakes up. And in the end, the friend says, for goodness sake, just take your bread. Please go. This is the picture of taking hold and persistence with God. You know, I think God says to that annoying neighbor, says to him, you of great faith, you terribly annoying man of incredible faith. Because he just plunders the kingdom of heaven for what he needs. This is the picture God gives of doing what Paul talks about, pressing on, taking hold, having great faith. You know, it says sometimes in the scriptures, it says salvation has come to this house. Salvation is something that comes to us. The gift of God's salvation through Christ Jesus is a free gift. But the fullness of life in Christ is something we must pursue and take hold of. Salvation is a free gift. But the fullness of life in Christ is something we must pursue and take hold of. Salvation in Christ is a free gift, but getting the life of Christ requires perseverance. Pressing on perseverance, taking hold perseverance, crawling through the dust perseverance, breaking the roof tiles perseverance, waking all your friends' kids and the neighbors perseverance. That is to what God says, wow, you of incredible faith. So the first question of today, what is the thing of the flesh you're holding on to? The second thing, faith is selling up everything you have to go somewhere you've never seen. And thirdly, press on, take hold, and persevere until you find your new home in Christ. Press on, take hold, and persevere until you find your new home in Christ. I love the words of the psalmist, Psalm 132, 3 to 5. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. And if you're like me, some of you in this room who are um, highly motivated, go-get-it type of um, people, overworkers, workaholics, are probably thinking, like I do sometimes when I hear something like this, I can't do any more. Like, I actually just can't do any more. I am disciplining so hard. I am doing everything to persevere, and I feel like you're telling me it's not enough. And the hope at the end of this passage is the point is not trying harder, because Paul talks to where that perseverance actually comes from, and he talks about it as the prize in Christ Jesus. I remember hearing a story a few years ago from Shane Claiborne. He um, was speaking at a... um, at an event, and afterwards he bumped into a guy who was cleaning the halls outside in this high school. 
and they would have these conversations about different things and it would go on for two or three minutes and then this guy would just stop and then be like, but isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't he just wonderful? And then they'd talk a little bit more about different things and then eventually it would come around again and this guy would say, but isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't he just wonderful? I kind of feel like that is where perseverance comes from because when you know the preciousness of Christ, then you will take hold, then you will persevere. When you know how precious your God is, then you will do whatever it takes to get to him. When you know the preciousness of your Jesus, you will do whatever it takes to get to him. So the message of today is not try harder. It's not remove more tiles from rooms. But what it is, is fall more in love with Jesus. Allow Christ to come into your heart and make you fall more deeply in love with him because when you know the value of that precious pearl, then what flows from that is a desperate pursuit to get there. You know, if someone said to me today, there is a million dollars for you in Palmerston North, and you've got 48 hours to get there on foot, I tell you, I will get to Palmerston North on foot. <laughs> Even to Palmerston North. Probably fly home. But, you know, that is the prize. How much greater is the prize that is Jesus than anything else? And so the thing I, I want to leave you with today is I want you to fall so in love with Jesus that you're like, you know what, I will sell everything to go somewhere I've never seen because he is worth it, because he is worth it, because he is worth it.